podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, y'all, before we dive into our surprise questions and before we talk more about waking up, um, let's read some more about less. So this is a little segment we do. We read a, a relevant article and this was, I, I dug something up. This is the first piece of writing that introduced me to Sam Harris's work. So I'm going to read a little bit from the future of the book, which is, oh, okay. is not a, um, a typical path into the world of, of everything Sam no, Harris. No. Um, it's sort of about the, the publishing industry, but it's almost a decade old now. It's uh, 2011. And, um, you know, it's it's funny. I often think of Sam as the intellectual Forrest Gump. <laughs> okay. He's accidentally stumbling into controversy after controversy after controversy. <laughs> like one minute he's fighting with Batman on Bill Maher, <laughs> and the other minute someone's tweeting at him angrily from right. both sides of the political aisle. Yeah. Right. But now you have this you have this app w- with waking up, and it has to be it has to feel like such a nice sort of removal from that because i think you're helping people in a way that is i mean meditation isn't very controversial but it's your app in particular is especially useful but it also has to feel like a nice break from the controversy is that right oh yeah and and i guess i should have seen this coming but it was really a surprise to me to the the experience i had releasing it so i so as you say i've been on the front lines of many different controversies and i do get it from the left and right, you know, in equal measure, uh, or at least by turns. And so, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, honestly, there are people on the left who legitimately believe I'm a racist, neo-Nazi, just, just you know, sociopath. Yeah. And yet, I hear from racist, neo-Nazi sociopaths and get death threats from them. I mean, so it's like it's like it's it's completely insane mm-hmm. my my world. And then I released this meditation app, uh, and what, what I get back is just. <laughs> A deluge of pure positivity, right? Yeah. It's like, and, and, it's, and, awesome. it's, and it's the only experience I've had professionally, honestly, where the what I put out and what I got back are in perfect registers. Like uh, people, there's there's no misunderstanding of my intentions. It had exactly the effect I was hoping it would have. It's just, I mean, it's so. And what was amazing to me, it's like I didn't even know you could have that experience anymore. <laughs> like I didn't know you could put something out that wouldn't lead some significant percentage of your audience to, you know, uh, gr- <laughs> to gratuitously angry, misunderstand you <laughs> or or just hate you for reasons that you couldn't possibly control. Man, like, that's got to feel like yeah. a breath of fresh air, man. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. So, but what's, a, and it's a very weird counterpoint to everything else I'm doing because people, in part, people have many false assumptions about what meditation is and what its effects should be. And so like, like, how could you be, how could you be somebody who's training in meditation, much less teaching other people how to meditate, and then also find yourself in conflict with other people about you know religion or science or politics or anything else I touch? And I, mean, I would just point out that, is it, that meditation doesn't imply pacifism or non-engagement with the world. I mean, I think outrage is an appropriate emotion to be motiv- motivated by occasionally, when certainly when it's warranted. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an appropriate kind of moral energy to draw on. And because the alternative is, ju- is just, you just, you're going to let the bullies and liars run the world, mm. right? And so like, yeah. so, so like do you want the, the wisest, most compassionate, most equanimous people to, and I'm not, I'm not 
elevating myself to their ranks, but uh, I'm aspiring to be that sort of person, and meditation is a necessary piece in the toolkit to become that kind of person, Mm -hmm. certainly. But do you want those sorts of people to just seed the the ground to the most selfish, most uh, pathologically callous people on earth? And you don't, and, and certainly we don't. And so I think you know moral outrage is a totally appropriate emotion to be motivated by. The question is, and this is where you know the utility of meditation comes in, the question is personally, if you're gonna fight any of these battles, how long are you going to be angry for? Right, like so, like if if mm. you if you see something that you feel is outrageous that requires this this energetic response of you know f- you know fuck no I'm not going to let this stand, right? The question is how long uh, is your uh, how toxic is that experience if 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 it's toxic at all, mm-hmm. right? And for me, it can it can be you know frankly very toxic, but. I now have a choice to just get off the ride whenever I want, right? right? So, and, and sometimes I, I don't notice that I should get off the ride until my wife says, what the hell are you doing, you know, complaining about this, right? Mm-hmm. And because the toxicity has now leaked out into my life and the people around me are getting stressed out by what just happened to me on Twitter with, you know, some sociopath. Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, but the the... The superpower of actually knowing how to meditate is you can actually break the the link in the chain that is causing your suffering. You can you can yeah. say, okay, right now I'm going to stop being angry, and it works, right? Yeah, like yeah. whereas if you if you can't do that, you're going to be angry for as long as you're going to be angry for, and that yeah. could be for you know hours, days, and and then you do all of the things that angry people do in that period, and. Uh, it's an enormous difference, but yeah. So I, I, I get caught again and again by the controversy, but I can get off the ride when I remember to get off the ride. You know? Yeah, so, and yeah. and that's what mindfulness. That's why I really love what you do with your app because it helps you show that, like, yes, like we have these feelings, but you get to decide how much you want to uh, dwell or sit or perpetuate those feelings. Right. Yeah. Well, um, we often talk about letting go as, as a sort of superpower, but mindfulness is sort of the path toward, toward letting go. Yeah. This is called The Future of the Book, and it was, it was I think, right on the heels of a book you put out called Lying, which was a, a short sort of uh, Kindle single, and you were trying to, uh, you were sort of publicly ruminating about uh, the state of publishing, and I think it's actually more relevant than ever now maybe with some different mediums like podcasting. We could talk about this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Sean will put a link to it in the show notes. I just want to use this as a jump off point for discussion here. Writers, artists, and public intellectuals are nearing some sort of precipice. Their audiences increasingly expect digital content to be free. Jaron Lehner has written and spoken about this issue with great sagacity, which uh, for those of you who have my level of education, I think means um, good judgment. Uh, you can purchase uh, Jaron's uh, book here, which most of you will not do. <laughs> <laughs> or you can watch him discuss these matters for free. The problem is thus revealed even in the act of stating it. How can a person like Lehner get paid for being brilliant? This has become an increasingly difficult question to answer. 
where publishing is concerned, the internet is both midwife and executioner. It has been easier to reach large numbers of readers, but these readers have never felt more entitled to be informed and entertained for free. Mm. I, I, yeah, I think we've set this. We, we've we've uh, we've done this to ourselves in, in many ways. Yeah. And let's talk about the optimistic view and also the pessimistic view behind this. Um, Sam says, "I have been very I've been very slow to appreciate these developments, and yet it is clear, even to me, that there are reasons to fear for the life of the printed book." Needless to say, many of the changes occurring in publishing are changing are changes that neither publishers nor authors want. The market for books is continually shifting beneath our feet, and nobody knows what the business of publishing will look like a decade from now. Well, it's almost a decade from then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it has changed considerably, although I think we've actually seen a slight shift back to print books. It maybe hasn't been as catastrophic as, as we thought, um, although it's it's fewer people are reading books than ever before, especially fiction. If you're a fiction mm. author, which is how I started uh, throughout all of this, um, it is more... So your average male in America reads less than one book a year. Yeah. Also, the, the stat on Kindle books, your average Kindle book sells zero copies. You, you round down, essentially. Wow. So when you when you think about this, like you couldn't even get your mom to buy the uh, the Kindle book that you published. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we're in a weird space now where Ryan and I, we started blogging in, in 2010 and we were about two months from publishing our first book when this came out. And to me, I maybe I'm silly, but I read this as opt- optimistic because Ryan and I sort of stumbled into this whole minimalism thing as he mentioned earlier you know we are the minimalists because the domain was available but uh, we just started writing about this and people started finding value in us sharing our own faults and problems it was not our intention to build a, a brand or 10 years later to have a business predicated on this right. but people started asking us like, you're the minimalist when are you going to publish a book and I was like well I guess we should probably do that we had a, a friend Julian Smith I'm not sure, sure if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book called The Flinch. He runs a company now called Breather, which is like an app to rent out uh, spaces. Um, but he published this like 30-page book. And the only way you could do that is obviously through Kindle. And um, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people found immense value in that short book. Mm-hmm. And you go on this article to talk about how a lot of readers, they don't want a 300-page book anymore because our attention spans are are tweetable now yeah well there's so many problems here that intersect and and it's uh it's it's relevant to what we're doing now i mean we're podcasting now on a podcast that doesn't take ads that is listener supported as mine is uh and this is a i mean this is just this is a business model that everyone has to you can sort of make up for themselves i mean so there's just uh and i'm experimenting in many different ways here and have been ever since i wrote that that blog post, um, there are many aspects of the problem. The, the, the core of it is when you're talking about digital media, we are, we've become uh, almost by accident anchored to an expectation of free, mm-hmm. right? So there, there are contexts where this, this isn't true. Uh, so, you know, people um, have Netflix subscriptions, for instance, and they either buy them or not. And but there's no I, I don't think there are many people thinking well why isn't Netflix free right or like right. and when somebody who is operating usually in a free medium like someone like Joe Rogan 
know, he's got a free podcast. He puts out a ton of free content. But occasionally he'll do a stand-up special. It'll, he'll sell it to Netflix. It'll only be there. People understand if you want to see his hour of stand-up, you got to have a Netflix subscription or, or you can't see it. And there's not there's not an expectation of free, but I think, I think there still is the expectation for free. I, I think that people expect to get hit that special for free because they have Netflix, but they're not thinking that. It, I think it becomes more difficult when you're asking for you know, like if, if you want to, you can rent our documentary on. Uh, it's on Netflix, obviously, so you can watch on Netflix, but you can rent it on um, you know, iTunes I, I or whatever. And, and people do that, but the vast majority of people have seen it on Netflix because there was, a, there was less friction there. They don't have to have the, the transaction. Well, once, there's so much on Netflix so, so that once you have a subscription, you sort of forget about it, and then it does seem free. I mean, you know, like yeah. cable television seems free uh, on some level, right? Sure. Uh, because it's just a sort of necessary infrastructure that you're paying for. But once you get closer to the transaction, once it's a question of whether do I buy this or not. So like if Rogan... It, rather than put his next special on Netflix, he decided to sell it online, right? He's just like, give me $5 and, and you can have the, the download. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he would get a ton of grief from his fans for just not putting it on YouTube, right? right. So yeah. so that we're anchored to free. And, so, and the, what I experience here is that uh, we're all suffering a kind of race to the bottom where it's having an ad-supported model, which is what has made free possible, is responsible for virtually everything that's wrong online. I mean, it's, re- it's mm. responsible for all of the toxicity and fragmentation of our society based on social media. I mean, if, you know, Facebook is the quintessence of this, what, you know, how the, you know, it's, the algorithms are designed to just maximize click-through, and because of the nature of the human mind, what maximizes click-through is, you know, outrage and conspiracy theory and mm. And just you know, stuff that is just amplifying tribalism and uh, a lack of sense making uh, globally now, uh, but uh, and it's it's responsible for the fact that even in uh, journals that even in our best journals where some significant percentage of their revenue is from subscribers, something like the Atlantic, right? You know their subscriptions are up there because of Trump. You know ha- happily, it's the one silver lining the, for for Trump, but. Uh, even at the even for that kind of content at the bottom, you'll see these horrific ads, right? You know, like yeah. you won't believe how ugly Tiger Woods's children are. I mean, like something insane, right? right, right. Um, and and people don't care at all about the brand damage. They're just trying to maximize uh, profit there. So uh, ultimately, I think we're going to get what we pay for here, and we're going to have to have to recognize that the future has to look more like Netflix and less like. Uh, clickbait and um, uh, certainly l- less like Facebook, but uh, there are real impe- there are real psychological impediments to that because people people don't want to keep getting their credit card out and 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 so to, to some degree a, a technological solution you know something built into the browser where you do this once and then it works for everything that right. would that would be the magic bullet but you need a Netflix for almost like online charges yeah, in, in yeah, general and I content. think. Apple is trying to do this uh, with some Apple News Plus or, or something like that. Where I, I actually ran into this problem this morning. There was a, an article I saw about uh, Pete Buttigieg, and I was trying to read it, and it took me to the Washington Post, and it was like, read this for a dollar. And the weird thing is, like, I would happily part with a dollar in order to read that article, but it wasn't really read this for a dollar. It was sign up for one week for a dollar, and then subsequent weeks are you know five dollars, whatever they are, right? Mm. 
And the thing I get worried about is like all of a sudden I'm I'm there's this cascade of of, of bills that I'm uh, I, I read one article and now I'm paying for yeah. it for the next three months. And, and tr- the truth is, it is a very cynical business model where I mean the 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 dirty little secret of a subscription business like you know my meditation app is that they are reliant on people subscribing and then forgetting about their subscription yeah. you know and, and just they just want you, you just want to, to keep once you have someone uh, then you keep charging them month after month uh, and so and so I've you know I've invented a business model which I don't even know I mean I, I think I've invented it maybe someone else has done it but um, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that money would ever be the reason why somebody wouldn't get some of my digital content, right? Yeah. Because it, because it is true that there is there is no marginal cost to producing the next download for a you know a podcast or or an app, and so Unlike a, a printed book, exactly, right? Okay. So like your possession of a printed that printed book, it, by definition, prevents someone else from reading that particular book, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not true with digital media, and that's and that's one of the reasons why people think the expectation of free makes sense ultimately, right? It doesn't, but you know that, that that's one point in their defense. Um, so you know, I, I so my business model is this is both for my podcast for the stuff that's behind the paywall and for my meditation app, which is just a you know an app in the app store. Um, I mean, it says it right there in the pricing on, in the app store. It's like you know, if this is you know fifteen dollars a month, but if you can't afford it, just send us an email and you'll get it for free, mm. right? And so and so you know some you know, hundreds of people a day. I think it's like a now hundred people at least a day do that, and you know they get it for free and and you know that's fine. I mean, but but I don't. The, the, so there's there's two issues here. Most people can afford to pay for digital media and they just don't want to, right? Right. At this point, I have no sympathy for those people. I mean, I, I am one of those people. I know what it's like to hit a paywall and just not want to get your credit card out. I, I get it. But this is a race to the bottom that we, we have to pull the brakes here. This yeah. is, there's so many awful things that are coming uh, and have come purely because we have decided digital media should be free. Uh, but if you can't afford it, I never want that to be the reason why you can't get access to my intellectual property. And so, yeah, you just send an email and you, you get it for free. And that's uh, and so, so it's like the future I want is Netflix, where people are appropriately charging for their hard work and intellectual property, and people are having great careers on the basis of, of producing content that we all want that has actually no marginal cost mm-hmm. uh, just by, by luck of the technology. But I want a world where if you actually can't afford it, you can send an email to Netflix and, and say, listen, I, I, want, I love movies. I want to watch movies. I'll watch a movie every day for the rest of my life. I just can't afford it. And they just give you an account, right? Like that would be the, that's the ethical business model for me. And that's what I'm trying to do. And, and I think we, we're seeing that right now with like YouTube. It, people perceive that to be free, but it's not actually free. No. It's, oh, it's, it's ad supported. And, you know, Ryan and I, for the longest, we get people who email us like, literally every day what's it cost to advertise on your podcast I put one in the spam folder yesterday <laughs> <laughs> i just respond back with ha 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 because like clearly you haven't listened to our podcast right. if you're trying to advertise every episode we say advertisements suck right. um and uh it's not that i i think i think some are, are way worse than others obviously mm-hmm. um it, but in fact sometimes they can even be helpful i'll see a billboard where i'm like i didn't know that album was out or that netflix show was out or whatever but I, I think that um, 
Well, I, well, just to be clear, I'm not against advertising per se. I mean, first of all, there's some people for whom it is totally brand convergent to be advertising and, and to be and to be doing the worst sorts of ads that I I felt I, I couldn't do on my podcast, which is to to just be shilling for a product. You, sure. you, you, you read the ad, right? Someone like my friend Tim Ferriss can do this because his whole thing is finding cool stuff in the world that that you know improves your life and and it's like it's like so when Tim finds a shirt that he thinks is the best athletic shirt out there his fans want to know that they want that shirt right mm-hmm. and yeah. and you know he's got you know he's into so many different things that there's no there's no hypocrisy there he can always find cool stuff that he thinks is cool that he likes using that he can tell people to use and you know, and it's 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 a kind of a curation process, and it is the thing that funds his podcast. Mm-hmm. Although I think even he wants to get out of the ad business too, because it's onerous for other reasons. But for me, I found that there's nothing sufficiently highbrow and just just uh, uh, uncontroversial. I mean, literally, it could have been the Oxford English Dictionary for me to show for it just felt wrong yeah. right <laughs> felt wrong given who I am and, and the kinds of topics I touch and I also I just I also realized that I touch so much controversy that I can never be in a situation where I can have you know the sponsors or anyone else turn out the lights on me right so you, and it's amazing to see big people in media you know people who are who have huge careers who are you know making 20 million dollars a year at the level of their salary who are just one wrong sentence away from having their careers just pulled out from under them, right? Right. you know, and and so it's, and and I talk, you know, I interview billionaires who are less free than I am with their speech mm-hmm. because they're worried about you know shareholder value or sponsors mm-hmm. or whatever. So it's, I, I realized that I wanted to create a platform where I was truly free to have an honest conversation about anything that interests me, and the price of doing that was to have it be be audience supported and then and then it's, it's uh, strangely i mean it sounds like a completely insecure job but once you have this job it's actually the most secure job on planet earth i mean i, I would have to do something so egregious that thousands and thousands of people would have to wake up the next day and fire me yeah right, because right. if one person leaves because they dislike something you don't want that obviously but it doesn't it doesn't cripple your ability to no. to earn a living no and, and I, I i consciously go against my audience all the time because that's the one the one place where if i could be uh constrained by a bad incentive it's theirs like if ever if ever i became too cautious because i was worried about offending my audience or some significant segment of my audience but i've just made it a, a point to never uh, be motivated by that fear, and I mean the, the places came up fairly noticeably uh, in the last couple of years was around. Um, it's, it's it's come up on both the left and the right, but on, so on on the left, sorry, on the right, it came up on when I discovered that a significant percentage of my audience were Trump supporters, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there there are few people who are as uh, who were as horrified by the election of tr- uh, of Trump uh, as I was, and. I noticed that because I have said, uh, you know, fairly uh, critical things about uh, Islam specifically as a religion, I had attracted some percentage of people who, you know, didn't care about any other part of my worldview. They just like to hear somebody say that you know we we have a problem with. Um, they thought you were uh, criticizing 
Muslims, not Islam. Yeah, exactly. So uh, whatever they thought. I mean, not, it's not that all of them are, are racist uh, nitwits, but undoubtedly some percentage were, and then some percentage were just people who, for whom that was the master variable, right? Mm-hmm. So like we're gonna we we need a president who's not gonna lie about. There being there being a need for radical reform within this one religion, more than Mormonism, more than Jehovah's Witnesses. More, I mean, it's just not you know if Scientologists were blowing themselves up on airplanes, uh, or in 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 um, uh, churches, uh, we would we would recognize we had a problem with Scientology, right? We wouldn't be lying about it, but because there you know this is entangled with concerns about racism and and political correctness. We've, we've, we're so hamstrung in talking about the power of these speci- these specific ideas, like you know, jihad, for instance. Uh, and Trump isn't hamstrung in this particular way. I mean, he's he's a he's chaos in in every way. But some percentage of people, even frankly, you know, there's at least one Muslim friend of mine who, who I know who voted for Trump just because she was so at her wit's end hearing people lie about and hearing people like Ben Affleck. You know, browbeat me on television for, uh, as a racist. Mm. Uh, so uh, we have to disentangle the the a, a legitimate concern about racism from this masochistic level of denial about the power of specific ideas uh, within within Islam at the moment. Uh, and Trump appeared to be doing that uh, for all of thirty seconds. And so. I'd recognize that maybe 20% of my audience, and maybe it was even more, 30% of my audience were were blindsided by my disavowal of Trump. Mm-hmm. And so I went at it for, you know, there's at least 30 hours on my podcast where I'm just, you know, uh, to, to the absolute boredom of everyone who agrees with me, I'm just railing against Trump. And I did notice a massive um, effect in my... Um, uh, you know, kind of business model, but I, I decided I just can't care about that, right? Yeah, and, right. And, and I've done, and then it's the same, same things happened on the left, where I, you know, I talked about, I've talked about, you know, things that are fairly taboo. Um, I mean, even everything I just said about Islam, you know, that was, you know, in its abbreviated form, will uh, raise the hackles of people who are classically on the left, for whom it's just assumed that no, no. Islam's a religion of peace. It's been hijacked by extremists. It's just there's no it's no different from Christianity or Judaism or anything other religion, um, and therefore any focus on it has to be a symptom of your personal bigotry, mm. right? And and so, um, and again, we're not you know we're not taking the time to actually talk about this in a systematic way, but I can just say that you you need to hear from real Muslim reformers, real secularists and liberals in that community, and especially ex-Muslims, people who used to be Muslim who decided they lost their faith, you need to hear what their lives are like in Muslim communities and just how difficult it is to talk about uh, things that are utterly straightforward to talk about in in other communities like freedom of speech or uh, gay rights or the rights of women and to recognize that there's a problem here. Um, worth talking about. So, you know, I, I found yeah. that it's it's easier for me and Ryan. We're, we're almost insulated against this in a way because, well, t- two reasons. One is 
the the most personal stuff we tend we do put behind a, a sort of paywall on Patreon where Ryan and I do the these sort of um, in depth maximal episodes and mm. we feel a certain freedom there. It's almost like talking to a it's like a stand up comic who's trying out his new routine at the comedy store as opposed to going to an arena. And so we the, those people give us the sort of leeway to fail out loud, mm. but also Ryan and I have. We have same values, but we have radically different beliefs in a lot of the scenarios. Like, um, we have different religious beliefs. We have uh, uh, different personalities. We voted for two different people in the 2016 election. <laughs> right. um, but we're, we've been best friends since we were fat little fifth graders. <laughs> and um, I, I think we're, we're, we're able to, in a way, it's like almost like it wasn't intentional, but we, we often have two sides of... Of this this coin of intentionality, and we, we get there via these different beliefs, these different paths that, that lead to the same the same place in a way. Yeah. And uh, I could see that yeah, if I was on my own and I just started, um, if I if I started, I I guess I alienate people, and then Ryan alienates people, but then they don't feel alienated because <laughs> they, they realize that from both sides. yeah right. yeah exactly they they realize that it's not a judgment of each other it's quite often just a judgment of our of our own ideas mm-hmm. i think what's changed since this article sam is the mediums have, have changed quite a bit yeah video is way more popular a decade later you know with with youtube and uh, i worry about netflix we're actually working with netflix on on a second film right now and um are they actually a producing partner uh, yeah producer? yeah so so it's, it's a little bit different this, this time around right. um and and with working with them like they put money into like some really expensive projects. You know, Dave Chappelle, if he's doing, you know, he did like four specials with them for yeah. $60 million. And that takes up what? Um, three, four hours of your time. But every week, Joe Rogan's putting 15 hours on YouTube for, for free. Yeah, right. we, we say free, but it's, it, it's ad supported, obviously. Um, I don't, I don't know how you can compete with that. Well, again, the, the problem is in the brains of the listener, uh, the listeners, because there's a very, and this is what I, I noticed. I, I used to be on Patreon. I'm, I'm not anymore, but um, I'm still, I still have the same model where I'm asking listeners to support the podcast. Mm-hmm. But what you're, what you're appealing to there is the, the philanthropic part of the brain. I mean, yeah. it's basically you, you are a charity, right? You're not a, a business in, at least as far as their minds are concerned. And, um, it's just, it's the wrong model because, so, I mean, if, I, I've seen fascinating discussions from people who are, you know, ostensibly my core audience, right, about whether or not they should support my podcast. And you'll hear, I, mean, I once saw this, you know, years ago, but it was just, it, it was kind of emblazoned on my brain as as proof that there's something intrinsically wrong with this business model because I'm, I'm listening to my, I'm seeing an exchange between my core fans and people will say, listen, I've read all his books and I'm listening. I've listened to every episode of his podcast. I'm just not sure if I should support it uh, because, hmm. uh, one, I'd like to know what he's going to do with the money, right? And, <laughs> oh, wow. or, and then someone else said, yeah, you know, I'm not so sure. I don't know how much he's getting for, for the podcast. Uh, and I, I'm not so sure how much I think so- someone should make from a podcast. Um, and then someone, someone else would chime in. Well, he, you know, he could fly people out. He could put them up in hotels. So like, and then someone, someone else said, "Well, you know, how much does the podcast cost actually?" Right. So th- these are uh, this is a stream of thinking yeah. again from my core audience, right? Mm. That would never occur 
for any other type of content. I mean, there's no one on earth who's ever said when I've released a, a new book, well, I would buy his book, but I, I'm not sure how much I think an author should make from writing a book. Yeah. Uh, or like how, mu- how much does it actually cost to write a book anyway, right? Like these are calculated and nothing, like people want to know what the microphone costs before they decide what, or how, what your rent is in the studio before uh-huh. they decide to, to support your podcast. That is a mind virus that they ha- that that has to be purged mm. because either they want this content to exist or they don't. Either they're d- deriving value from it or not. A- and if you just take a step back for a second, this is the most honest, most unencumbered, unencumbered transaction business-wise that exists because this is the one thing where you actually can consume as much as you want of it for free mm-hmm. before you discover whether or not it adds value to your life and then you can support it to the degree that it has value. It's almost like going to Barnes and Noble, reading the entire book and then buying it afterward Yeah, if you really found exactly. value in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but it be, and I, I hear from people, you know, I've written very short, you, you mentioned the, uh, the dirty little secret about why there are not more short books. They're not more short books, not because books really have to be 300 pages, but because publishers can't figure out how to make a profit publishing 100-page books. But I I have published a few very short books, and I hear from people who will go – this not so much anymore, but when I released my second book, Letter to a Christian Nation, which could be read in an hour, I would hear from people who would go into a bookstore – read it in the aisle and put it back on the shelf and then send me an email telling me that they had done that and expecting me to be happy about that, right? Oh, wow. You know, uh, <laughs> like, well, you're a genius, right? Um, well, it's just, it, people don't understand that it, it, all of these things have to become viable businesses, otherwise every one of us has to find another way to, to have a career mm-hmm. and we'll do something else. So like, if you... So, so I'm I'm continually hearing people hearing from people who think, man, you podcasting is exactly what you should be doing. You should be doing more of it, right? I, I, this is just this is I'm getting immense value from it, uh, and yet these same people I know expect podcasts to be free until the end of the world, right? right. And they don't want to uh, yeah, do more of it, but I'm not gonna I don't want to pay you for it, though, yeah. But I want you to do more, yeah. And if I do pay you for it, I would be scandalized to know that you had be- become rich from it. I mean, this, this mm. is, a, well, you mentioned Dave Chappelle. So we hear that Dave Chappelle made wh- wh- whatever it was, $60 million from his podcast, uh, from his uh, his uh, comedy specials on Netflix. Uh, or Ricky Gervais, I think, it, you know, he sold it, that one uh, special, um, Humanity, I think for $30 million. Mm. I Just don't. to be clear, Netflix doesn't give us anywhere okay. near this. In fact, uh, <laughs> yeah. our, our documentary made less from Netflix than any other platform. So yeah, true but, story. It's, it's a winner-take-all situation. It, it, it sort of is, yeah. So, but, uh, but, so, you know, if you're a real fan of Ricky's, right, which many of us are, uh, and you hear that he has sold a special to Netflix for $30 million, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a real fan of his, you're not thinking... That greedy bastard! I yeah, like I can't you know I can't believe he charged Netflix that much money. Well, this right? takes like, us back right. to, to your to your app in a way. When sometimes in, in waking up during the meditations, you 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 have us think about some people who like think about someone and they they achieved all their goals or their dreams <laughs> and be happy for them. And I think some for some of us. Uh, it's almost like this competitive, I don't know if it's a Western or American mindset, um, 
where it's like uh, if they're getting something and I'm not, then I'm I'm losing. Yeah, well, yeah, the people have a. I mean, that, that's what's so corrosive about envy. Uh, it's just, it's a total lack of an ability to celebrate the success of other people because it's the sense that you are diminished by other the happiness or or uh, uh, flourishing of others and. I mean, there, there are narrow cases where that may be true. I mean, someone gets into to a college that you didn't get into, say, you can mm-hmm. think that they took your space or whatever. But, but even then, you could still be happy for yeah, them. You have the I capacity mean, to be. Yeah, either, either you want people to be happy or you don't on some level. And uh, you, you may b- believe you do in the abstract, but many people find themselves in a position with even their best friend. You know, something good happens for your best friend that hasn't happened for you. And you feel this cramped sense of envy, mm. right? Where it's like, when's my, you know, when's my ticket going to get punched, yeah. right? And like my friend just got, you know, a sitcom or whatever, and I'm still unpublished, uh-huh. you know, and that sucks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and like, it, and what it is that is a that is a synonymous in that moment with a failure of love, right? You may think this person is your best friend, but in that moment, you don't actually love them. Right, you are just you've you're like this this uh, collapsing star, you know, where you're um, uh, you're being ruled by a very different uh, physics at that moment, and um, it's such a relief to, to one to identify that as a problem, right? It's a problem. I mean, in, in Buddhist terminology, it's a lack of sympathetic joy. Uh, what you want to be able to feel, in addition to feeling compassion for people who are suffering. You want to be able to feel joy for people who are realizing their dreams, mm-hmm. who are you know who are, who are getting the 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 success that they've been working hard for, uh, provided that it's you know it's ethical. You know you you don't have to be joyful at the the uh, dictator who just uh, uh, you know took control of his country, but you you can be joyful for the people who are realizing their dreams and realize that it doesn't actually diminish anything about your capacity to realize your own yeah when ryan and i lived in, in montana i used to go to a sauna with uh, a few people from the black blackfoot tribe american indian tribe and they said the one thing that really confused them about a lot of um americans was that we it was, it was they didn't use the term zero sum but essentially like the the, the competition uh, between us like whereas some someone in their tribe if someone else in their tribe lost then they were losing too right. whereas with us it was like oh, i'm winning only if ryan loses mm. you know thankfully you know we don't have that dynamic but i think it is i think it's prevalent in in our culture where to 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 sort of feel that way but if i were to turn the tables on this I, a, a decade later i would just say that if there's an optimistic view of all of this is that a lot of the gatekeepers have far less power. They're still there to a certain extent, but Ryan and I had, we had to go through the traditional process. I I don't think we'd be nearly at, we wouldn't have reached nearly as many people as we, we, we have. Yeah, totally agree. People started uh, sharing our blog posts and eventually our books and, and the the business model has certainly been different. Ryan and I have gone on over 300 tour stops, I think. <laughs> right. And uh, initially, it was just us selling books out of the trunk of our car. And, well, his car is 2004 Toyota Corolla. 
And we would just be on the road and and literally go from bookstore to bookstore to bookstore. In 2014, we did 119 cities. Um, But we did it on our own. And to me, I didn't have to wait for someone to select me or for permission in order to do it. And so, yes, there, there are, there's a changing business model, Mm -hmm. but if there's something to be taken away, if you're creative, we have a lot of musicians on this podcast, they don't make money through record labels. In fact, it's sort of a badge of honor now to, we were just talking about this beforehand for people to be independent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I feel pretty optimistic about where things are heading, meaning that you don't have the gatekeepers. You have more of an opportunity to put things out there yourself. Um, I do agree, though, and, and I don't. I think what you were saying, Sam, was that having this this business model of people being essentially like altruistic, like giving their money to you, right. is not a good business model. Um, well, well this, it can be good for for outliers. I mean, I consider myself an outlier, and I'm sure you guys are outliers here. Uh, I can't, in good conscience, I can't recommend recommend my business model to generically to oh, others yes, yeah. because I don't know if they can succeed in building an audience that will support them sufficiently. Yeah. Like uh, Netflix would not be able to survive under that business right, model. Yeah. Right. I see what yeah. you're saying. But, but you can recommend it as a template or as a recipe where, where people can tweeze out ingredients and sort of create their own recipe. And, and, and to me that's, yeah, Ryan and I have a, you know, a, a top hundred podcast on, you know, iTunes and a bunch of different countries. And it is, uh, you know, top 30 on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are only 30 people who can fill that slot or a hundred people that can fill that slot. But it doesn't mean you can't tweeze out an ingredient from what Sam is doing, from what mm-hmm. the minimalists are, are doing. And also from what people who do ads like Tim yeah. Ferriss, you, you can find different ingredients and say, okay, that's not the exact model is going to map onto my you know creativity mm-hmm. but i can find something in it to and and, and sort of you know, adjust yeah. for taste in a yeah. way yeah i feel optimistic because i think we're in the middle of the evolution that's happening right now so like there's not you know there's no firm ground that you know where we can put our flag and say like this is how you know the new business model is with all of the you know electronic information that's being put out there but i do think things will settle and like the one one thing that I know to be true, at least for myself in my life, is that if I am putting out something consistently and if I am consistently adding value and I am putting my best foot forward, I can look in the mirror and be like, you know what? I put the most effort I could into that podcast. I, I prepared, you know, I put the best effort I could into that book or that essay. Like things do find a way of kind of working themselves out. Does that mean that Josh and I will eventually be millionaires? Probably not, but I know that we will be able to survive in some way or fashion as long as we're you know kind of sticking to what what our core is and the beautiful thing about uh, what what the, the the model that we have right now and the reason why I really like the work that you do Sam is because you know nobody here in this room we don't have to pick a team we don't have to pick a side it's like we get to be ourselves we get to talk about yeah. things we want to talk about and uh, you know there are people who do choose teams that you know, come to us, but they come from both sides. And I think that's, it's kind of a beautiful thing to be able to bring, um, to bring the left, to bring the right together, to at least, you know, talk about some things that otherwise maybe the left or the right wouldn't talk about because it is such a treacherous ground to, to kind of work through. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are many variables here that are, uh, have conspired almost by accident to change the nature of the conversation. I mean, so the fact that we, we don't have a hard time limit on you know any podcast just changes the nature of what can be said and what gets said on, on in that medium you know so mm-hmm. even even having the time limit of an hour 
is enough of an imposition that it noticeably changes the conversation. Mm-hmm. And and so and even if you only wind up going an hour and eight minutes, right, the fact that you could take as long as you want sure. changed yeah. changed the conversation. And mm-hmm. so and, and broadcast media can't uh, align with that. And uh, no, when we tried, to, uh, we did uh, like we were pitching a TV show to a bunch of networks and. <laughs> Constantly are asking us, "Where's the drama in this?" And yeah. I'm like, "Wow, well, there's no, there's no real drama." And they're like, "Can you create some?" And, and the other thing is like, well, "How does this fit into 22 minutes, right?" Mm. And then seven minute segments so we can put ads into it. And it's the one reason that uh, working with Netflix has worked really well for us because advertisers don't really align with our values personally. Not right. judging anyone else who, who decides to bring them on. Um, although I can see how painful it is too. One of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called The Culture, or the Culture Gab Fest. Uh, it's uh, from Slate. Uh-huh. And they... Um, like you can see that they're like railing against corporations uh, for part of it. Um, so one of the people on there is pretty far left, just railing against corporations. And then I shit you not, they're well, let's do an ad for Exxon right after this. Mm. Like literally an ad for Exxon after you've been t- talking about the, the problem with corporations and you're like, that can't feel good to you, right? Mm. At, at at best, you've like found a way to form a detente and, and you have this sort of, I don't know, you've been able to compartmentalize it and, and set it aside, but it can't possibly feel feel good. Yeah. And and the same is true with the, the time frame, like forcing something into, yeah, you've done in Today Show or whatever before, and they're like, we're going to give you the long segment. It's four minutes. <laughs> like, I'm going to communicate something meaningfully and, and significant in, in a four-minute time frame. Good luck. It's like, no, I'm, I'll, I'll do my best to communicate some sound bites. Hopefully, that'll lead people to, to some deeper work. But, right. but um, th- those, I think sometimes constraints can breed creativity. Yeah. But unnecessary constraints um, are just constraining. Yeah, I do love how it's evolving to the business model of you pay for not having advertisements. So for for when people do you know contribute a, a two dollars five dollars to a, a, someone who's on Patreon, mm. I mean they're kind of paying for that luxury of not having to sit through ads. I mean YouTube has that business model now where you can pay to, to not have advertisements. Right. I think Facebook is missing out on a huge chunk of cash, like not opting people to pay a dollar or two dollars uh, a month to not have advertisements on their uh, on their Facebook ads but I, f- I feel like the industry is moving closer towards that way where you can you can if the if you're not going to make money from advertisements well at least let's have a you know membership fee so we can make up those ad dollars that we're losing yeah yeah no that would be that would be a a good move I just want to come back to one thing you said about touring though so, so what What's happened to authors it happened to music earlier, right? Yeah. So, and and that's back in the oddies. Yeah, but mm-hmm. but the problem is, is that music, almost by definition, if you're a musician, you probably can tour. I mean, that is the, the, the yeah, that is the art, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas if you're writing books, if you're, you know, fiction or nonfiction, there's no guarantee that you're the kind of person who can stand up on a stage or wants to stand up on a stage and talk about something that is relevant that, that becomes a a side gig that becomes you know a, a, a way a way for you to, to monetize what used to be the source of your income, which is the publication of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a it's been more destructive, and it's been it's destructive even to music because you know a lot of these guys uh, don't want to tour. You know, like they're either at the end of either they're older, they've got families, right? It's a very it's a very different uh, 
moment where you have to if you if you have to tour because you can no longer sell CDs. We right? have good friends who are who are doing two hundred dates a year because yeah. it's out of necessity, right? Like right. the album is the sort the sort of thing that. Yeah. It's the calling card that gets you to tour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. now, weirdly, the books are, are, are becoming that. There are obvious exceptions to that where, you know, people make a lot of money from, from books. But but now it becomes the calling card to the media, which is less relevant. But but it's become much more diverse. Ryan and I, I think if, if 10 years ago, uh, nine years ago when we started The Minimalists, you would have come to us and say, well, you're going to write these blog post and then you're going to write three books and then you're going to start a podcast and you're going to go out on tour and the documentary and then YouTube that would have been overwhelming and I imagine anyone who's coming in this space now they're, they're overwhelmed by I have to do all of this yeah. like I just want to write a damn book yeah. but yeah. in a way, weird way like you kind of have to become your own business manager and you're right not not everyone is um I think set up to do that right now, but you're gonna, if you want, if it becomes the cost quite often, you have to figure, right. you have to navigate that. I was never much of a public speaker until I had to be. Yeah, and, yeah me too. <laughs> 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 but uh, when we go on the road, I often say there are three things I hate, you know, crowds of people travel and public speaking, right. and yet here I am in front of <laughs> a thousand people talking about uh, getting rid of your stuff. Uh, anyway, I wanna move on and talk real quick about three things things I've learned from Sam's waking up app. I had three sort of revelations as I was going through these first 50 days over the first 70 days. Um, it was Ella's spring break that really screwed me up. I think that entire week, which was the most chaotic week, we like just gave up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bex, uh, my wife and I were just like, nope, I uh, can't do it uh, this week. My uh, biggest downfall has been going to bed early. Like I just, I'm like, oh, I'm going to bed and then forget to meditate. But uh, I, I remember when we were uh, interviewing you for the documentary, I'm like, I, I, whenever I meditate, sometimes I fall asleep. I was, And he, you were like, well, you should probably just go to sleep then. <laughs> <laughs> sleep is also good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so um, I, I find that the, is there a best time of day that you've, you've found a lot of people talking about? Is it mornings? Well, a, lot, a lot of people do it early in the day because they, they feel it's going to set the tone for the rest of the day. And there, there's certainly something to that. But um no, whenever, whenever you've got a slot, it makes sense to do. And again, it's it's for me, it's not so much. I mean, the you know the formal practice is great, and and you know the app. Uh, it's these are ten minute sessions. Why uh, did you choose that, by the way? Because ten minutes I find to be far more palatable than twenty. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and ultimately we may allow people to choose whatever increment of time they want. You mm -hmm. know, you just build in more silence. Uh, but it's. It is a training. It is, and you know, so it is kind of like again analogous to a gym, where you know you need some time to actually do the exercise to to, to get something into your muscle memory. But ultimately, it's much more about clear moments of connecting with with that way of being in every other moment, in every other situation in your life. And it's just not. It's just in the the act of reaching for a glass, right? Just to clearly be aware. In that moment, that is a that's completely co coincident with the uh, the experience of meditation. It's just you have to have done enough training to be able to find that experience, right? right. And and but when you do, then you're not you're you're no longer seeing a stark division between periods of practice and the rest of your life. And that and then, so that's uh, if there, if you can say there's a goal here, it is to 
make that the character of your conscious experience more and more, whatever you happen to be doing. So I've, I've meditated quite a bit over the last uh, five years, ever since I first read 10% Happier. Uh, Great book. Right, really good. Introduced to it by you, and then we became friends with, with Dan just because he, he's, he's been amazing um, with you know, meditation for uh, people who haven't gone overseas and studied meditation. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a good doorway for me. And then uh, read your book, Waking Up. Um, but, and I've tried a bunch of these different apps, as I mentioned earlier, but then trying, uh, trying Waking Up, I, I found that... The way that you teach meditation has given me some insights that I had not gotten previously from just meditating itself. Um, it's it's kind of like having a good writing teacher versus uh, just writing yeah. in, in a way. Uh, there were three big insights I got over the last 50 days. Number one, I remember it specifically, it was day 17. I was sitting in a coffee shop, Blue Bottle Coffee in, in Hollywood, uh, West Hollywood. and Good coffee. That was a, That was a good... Good start. That might be the coffee, not the app. <laughs> well, uh, I remember sitting there. I was actually waiting for the coffee. And uh, and all of a sudden, uh, this voice out of nowhere just said, this is all appearing in consciousness. Mm -hmm. And like in that moment, like because you, you, you teach how to meditate, eyes closed, eyes open. And uh, before then, I hadn't really had much experience meditating with the eyes open because it seemed so overwhelming and, and chaotic. Um, but in that moment, it was like, it was this moment of relief for me. Like, oh yeah, all of this is just appearing unconscious. Whether it's the light above me, the coffee that's getting ready to come out to me, the smells in here, uh, the horns on, on you know, the street uh, behind me. And the, the not clinging to any of that has been really good, especially with respect to sound. It, it, the sound has helped me let go of clinging to other things as, as well, which um, was day 34. It was 17 days later, I guess. I realized that so at the end of most meditations, you say, all right, for the last minute, let's, uh, let's start again. Let's start over. Yeah. And it was almost like this weird permission slip to, because you, you can carry that over to anywhere else in life, not just yeah. your meditation practice, but uh, I usually walk here to the office about three miles away from, from my house. And um, I've, I've, I've been uh, done a bunch of physical therapy the last few years. To I also have a vo broken vertebrae like Ryan, but from many years ago. And I've taught myself to walk correctly again because I was walking like a duck for m many years. But I still catch myself walking like a duck now occasionally. <laughs> but I give myself permission, like, okay, I'm halfway to. I'm already halfway to the studio. I can start again right now. Like I don't have to beat myself up. Right. It's all, it's all sort of in the past now. I can start yeah. at this moment. And that holds true in any experience. Like even now where we are in the podcast, like no matter how you're feeling about this, I can make the rest of this thing outstanding. Even though I felt like, well, I really fumbled throughout the beginning of this. I can make the rest of it outstanding. Right. And that was really, really helpful. The ability to start over yeah. whenever. It's so true, man. Well, like one of the cliche things I feel like I hear uh, when it comes to meditation, I don't think I've ever heard you say this, Sam. But, you know, you'll hear, uh, just let everything flow through you like a hollow tree. Like that is something that I've heard over and over again to the point where it's become cliche. But with your app, like I actually understand what that means now. Mm -hmm. Like you actually do get to choose the, the, the thoughts, those, those impulses that you can either let take over and you can ruminate or you can just kind of let them pass. And being able to separate from that consciousness with the impulse, I mean, that is a very, very powerful tool. Well, that, that, uh, the metaphor I found empowering was the third thing I learned was day 46. You talk about waves mm -hmm. and, and thoughts as sort of waves. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, so 
I mean, it's just the nature of our minds to be identified with thought most of the time. And this really is how the, the sense of self is structured. So that you're, you're not noticing thought as a, a class of objects in consciousness. You're not noticing them as part of the contents of consciousness. They just sort of come up from behind and they seem like you, right? So like you say something and uh, I'm trying to listen to you, but then I think, oh fuck, did I leave my phone in my car? Or like, so, so like, but that, so that thought comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. and it's me. Right, it's mm-hmm. it, like there's no distance between co- consciousness and that product, which is you know auditory, visual. I mean, it, 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 it depend I mean, depending on what you're thinking about and, and your your particular style of thinking. It can be more one or the other. But I mean, some people almost ha- never have visual images, and some people have a lot. But whatever, it, it, it there's a voice in your head that is telling you things, and it doesn't it has a very different implication than somebody else's voice like if you say mm. oh my god did i leave my phone in my car i'll just hear you say it and it's clearly you right <laughs> but when but but with the with the voice that sounds like me in my head that says oh my god uh, it co-ops everything and depending on it, it just so happens that you know for most of us most of the time the character of that conversation is tending to make us unhappy Right, it's tend to, It's just. It's just. It's either incredibly boring, right? I mean, what, there's another uh, amazing component to this, which is we never get bored of telling us telling ourselves the same thing over and over again. I mean, if you if you could imagine your thoughts being broadcast on a loudspeaker so that others could hear them, it would be the most psychotically boring <laughs> litany of of just rehearsals of past conversations and chat just ch- empty chatter yeah. it's yeah, just James it's, Joyce novel it's unbelievable <laughs> what we think to ourselves uh, and the repetition the, the the perseveration is incredible right well, we won't get tired the 10th time the same thing comes up in yeah. the span of five minutes uh, we don't even notice it's not even salient to salient to us that it, it should be boring so um, uh, these things these thoughts arise and we don't notice it. And the feeling of being a self, the feeling that we call I, the feeling of being, uh, well, let's just be clear about what this is. It's, it's not the feeling of being identical to your body. You don't feel like you are you down to your toes. Mm-hmm. You feel like you're a passenger in the body. You feel like you're a subject riding around in your head most mm-hmm. of the time. And you're identified with this, this mind, uh, which for which the body itself is a kind of object. I mean, you can look down at your hands and you can imagine being without hands and you you know, you know, you feel like they're your hands, you care about them obviously, but you're up here, you're in your head, mm-hmm. and that's the place from which you, everyone attempts to learn how to meditate. And then they close their eyes normally. And so you're now you're inside, the world is outside, and you're in your head and you're trying to strategically pay, pay attention to something, whether it's your breath or a mantra or whatever you've been taught, and you're finding this difficult because you're being buffeted by thoughts moment to moment. And again, these thoughts don't even seem like appearances in consciousness for the most part. They just feel like you and you've forgotten you're, gonna, you're supposed to be meditating in the first place and you're thinking about you know, your career or whatever it is, yeah. and then you come back to the breath or, or, or whatever the object is. And... 
but again, you're 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 identified with the sense that you are a a you're a subject in the head that can either be lost in thought or aware of something strategically, and hopefully this whole project's going to pan out and be useful in the end. Uh, but the real project is to recognize that that point of view of being a subject in the head is a false one, right? There is no subject in your head. There's no little man in the boat riding the the river of consciousness. There's just the river, mm-hmm. right? There's just consciousness and its contents. And one of the things that can be so clarifying about learning to meditate with your eyes open is this sense of that there's this interior world that you can meditate on and then there's everything else out out there that is a false one it's a false one neurologically and it's a false one uh, phenomenologically everything that you could possibly notice including the world must first be an appearance in consciousness to notice now, I'm not saying that the world is made of consciousness. I'm not going Deepak Chopra on you. I'm not saying your consciousness gave rise to the Big Bang. And consciousness is still, at what point it arises in the physics of things is, is still mi- mysterious. Right. Uh, but um, And there's every reason to believe that it, you know, it does get produced by brains. I mean, that's, that's certainly not a crazy uh, thing to assume at this point. But as a matter of experience, the world you see and can touch with your hands is the same place you're thinking. It's the same place thoughts are arising. It's the same place moods are arising. It is consciousness. Uh, it's 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 the it's in the same way. I mean, this is the, why a, a mirror is a good analogy. It's like, um, and I think I say this at some point in the app. It's like if you've ever been in a restaurant that has a mirror, a full length mirror across one wall, right. and you didn't notice it was a mirror. You just thought the restaurant was twice as big, mm-hmm. right? So you're in the restaurant and you're, you're just you're seeing people everywhere. And then at some point you recognize that all of that over there is just a reflection, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that sudden shift, nothing has actually changed visually, right? It's still just a, a show of color and light and shadow. It's all it's the same. But you recognize that, that it, everything over there is just a, pat, just a play of light on a wall. Right. Everything over here is consciousness, Right, it, it, that same shift is possible, no matter how colorful or scary or ugly or you know whatever is happening in the world. It is it, it is a it all does have a kind of dreamlike character. I mean, it's like like j- the place you are when you are dreaming is substantially similar to the place you are with your eyes open in waking life. In that the the substance of everything that can be experienced is a matter of consciousness and its contents. As we, we can't get outside of that. And so it's not, um, that does uh, offer an immense amount of freedom because changing the character of your experience is often as good as changing the world. It's not that you never want to change the world, right? There are things in the world that we want to change, right? There, there'll be some global pandemic that will, you know, uh, be threatening to kill everybody, and we'll we either find a cure for it or we don't. That has to happen in the world. But in terms of of, I mean, we have a, a our user interface with the world is this conscious uh, show, which uh, again you can navigate either by being hostage to your thoughts mm-hmm. every minute of the day. Everything becomes a pandemic. Yeah, mm. or you can actually experience the freedom of 
recognizing what consciousness is like in each moment uh, and lose this sense of being the threatened ego in the middle of it all. I mean, that's, a, you know, the, insofar as the goal of meditation is, quote, self-transcendence, it is to recognize that everything you're taking to be yourself, your body, your your mood, the feeling of your, you know, your face when you're having a conversation, all of that's just an appearance in consciousness. Consciousness itself doesn't actually feel like any of those things, right? It right. doesn't feel like I. It doesn't feel like the, the, whatever, again, we're, we're constantly just noticing the evidence of our bondage on some level, and yet all of it's appearing in a context that is completely unstructured. It's, there's no form to it. And mindfulness ultimately is a matter of falling back continually into that position of just being the formless context in which everything's appearing. And again, it has this equalizing character so, so that you can actually, it's like, you're, you know, if you, you feel a pain in your knee, normally your happiness is predicated on getting rid of it. Right, like, like there is no, like, there's nothing to do before you figure out a solution to that problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you can actually recognize that you can you can be at rest first. You can be happy first before anything changes, mm-hmm. and before the resolution. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you know, well, my daughter is turning six uh, next month. Is it too soon for her to start the? You have a, you have a whole children's section in your app, uh, yeah, children's meditation. Uh, that's, that's my wife teaching mindfulness to kids. Yeah, and uh, my wife Annika, who has um, she's worked with the this foundation, the Inner Kids Foundation, which has been um, really doing some pioneering work, bringing mindfulness into to uh, the curriculum in, in many schools. That's awesome. Uh, and yeah, you can start early. I mean, six is. I think the earliest she started is five. She's she's been teaching a, a preschool class um, most recently, but um, yeah, six, seven. That's that's really a great place to start, and it's amazing. You can see you see a, a, a class of six year olds sitting in silence for fifteen minutes, and then talking about their experience. It's just amazing. I mean, like the the first class is just chaos, as you would expect. Yeah. But you know, a couple of weeks in. And a couple of weeks, meaning like once a week, so like a couple of sessions in. Oh, wow! Uh, you can you can have kids who are sitting for fifteen minutes in silence, and then, you know, they're having a kid level introduction to it. But, um, you know, at at the first pass, it's just giving them the ability to be aware of what they feel mm-hmm. in each moment, like mm-hmm. just to 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 recognize that they're feeling sad or angry or you know uh, anxious. I mean that that's a, a crazy level of metacognition for a, a six year old. I yeah. mean, just like for for the six year old to to realize, yeah, when my brother said that, it made me angry, and I wanted to hit him, but I I realized I didn't have to hit him because I could just the anger would go away. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that to say, I mean that's you know give that kid a Nobel Prize, right? I mean that's like that's, that's huge, insane yeah. for a six year old, yeah. um, and that's. Uh, there are that's world a, leaders who can't yeah, figure this out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, that's the kind of thing you hear from six-year-olds who learn to th- this practice. 
I can't imagine Ella being quiet for 15 minutes without an <laughs> iPad in her hand. So this will this will be a fascinating. I'll have to report back okay. on the podcast here. Uh, let's dive into some of these uh, quick surprise questions here. Lucas in New Zealand says uh, he's a question about ambition. How do I stay mindful of my personal values despite contrary professional values being thrust upon me in the workplace? Mm. Uh, and I guess the the question that I would append to this is: um, Does ambition help more than it uh, hurts, or d- is it actually harmful? Um, is it is ambition toxic in a way? Well, it certainly can be toxic. I mean, it's it's not. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, there is the the totally egocentric, narcissistic, uh, pathology of ambition, and that hence hence the, the question, uh, but. On some level, it, it can be purified by a different set of goals. I mean, like like you can you can look if you just want to be famous, that's one thing. I, mean, I would put that on the the toxic side, and mm-hmm. it's also on the confused side because you're not recognizing all the downsides that come with fame. But um, you can also just want agency because you realize there's an opportunity to do a lot of good in the world, right? Like you could just you just want to be able to to uh, get your good ideas out there or have interesting conversations at a higher and higher level, right? So, um, so yeah, I think you can draw a lot of energy that uh, is very positive uh, and can be motivated by compassion and interest and you know, curiosity and compassion, you know, uh, dialed all the way up in terms of the, the kind of the energy can look a lot like ambition. You know, and it could be so, or somebody just wants to make art and loves making art, and then finds an audience that appreciates that art, and then all of a sudden, you know, whatever, you're, you're, you're Lady Gaga or somebody who's just at the absolute summit of fame and apparently uh, apparent ambitions realized. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just just picking her out of thin air. I don't know if she's ambitious or, or not, but or, or egocentric or not. But um, the you could there's no reason why you couldn't have that level of success and that level of drive purely for creative altruistic reasons i mean it's just it's just energy on that level so there's yeah. there's both forms of it now what about the the values piece here so so lucas is saying you know I, how do i stay mindful of my personal values when there are contrary professional values being thrust upon me uh, ryan i think about if you're you're working a job that is completely out of line with your values yeah, or even halfway out of line with your values right right you're going to feel some some discontent there yeah there's going to be some some pulling and tugging that that uh you actually won't be able to do anything about if you continue to work for that company i mean it's when i think about this question it makes me think about um and i'm going to butcher this quote from thoreau but it's you know it's not a matter of being busy but it's what you're busy about yeah. And I mean, that's the question that Lucas has to ask or anyone else out there who's seeking uh, fame or, you know, just doing work for the sake of work. It's like, what are you actually working towards? So at a company where your your values are out of alignment, uh, that's that, that's a, that's going to lead to a dead end eventually, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I would agree. I, I think there's, you know, the framing can do a lot. I mean, I think there's there are things that uh, can be stigmatized as negative, which 
aren't necessarily negative, but obviously there are things that are negative, which which you know you're going to there's a a uh, a real hypocrisy or a real conflict in lending any energy to that cause if mm-hmm. if it's not your cause. But I mean, there are things. I mean, I guess what I'm uh, trying to carve out here is that there are things that can seem superficial and would be, would not be on anybody's list of valuable contributions to society, which in certain circumstances can be quite valuable. I mean, just like, you know, just kind of mindless entertainment, right? Like if you're working for, if you're producing some show that you don't think is all that good, uh, uh, it's not, certainly not profound in any way. But the reality is, is that there are a lot of people who are living very stressful lives Mm -hmm. who by even just tuning out for 22 minutes on that show are, it's it's good for them, right? You know, yeah, you know, and it's, and it's just, um, and this is actually this is even true with meditation. I mean, so there's some people who are saying, you know, I'm I'm so stressed out, I'm so unhappy. There's so much going on in my life. I I find that if I sit down and meditate, it just it feels worse, right? Like I'm just mm. ruminating about my problems. I mean, honestly, I would. There are many cases where it would be skillful to just go watch Game of Thrones, right? I mean, like if that allows you to forget about your problems for that period, just to just to uh, provide some relief mm-hmm. that's a that's a can be a, a totally skillful reset mm-hmm. you know uh, so it's not it's not that you everything has to be you know profound all the time but yeah no there's there, there can be certainly a there are toxic projects which no ethical person would want to be associated with and if you find yourself part of one of those i think you you've got to get out yeah. I think also there's there's profundity profundity in the sort of banal experiences. Like we might be doing something that we we might perceive as banal. I'm not really adding value to the world, but because I work changing oil, or I'm a at, garbage collector, right? Or I'm a, a waiter, or a waitress. These are incredibly meaningful experience, or can be incredibly meaningful experiences, yeah. not just to the person, but also the people that you're serving. Yeah. You're, oh, yes. you're you're helping solve problems, and I think real society doesn't function without people like that. Yeah, I think maybe ask that question. What are the problems I'm helping solve in, in, in doing this job, this career, or this mission that I'm working on? Um, and then I think you can find great meaning in helping other people solve those problems. Cat yeah. in Savannah, Georgia says, can psychedelic drugs help with mindfulness? <laughs> um, Dude, I'll tell you the most profound thought I've ever had on psychedelics. Uh-huh. Is I was looking in the mirror and I was like really trying to... Um, you know, reach some type of enlightenment. Mm. And the thought I had is I was like, the day that I can look into the mirror and not see anything, like I think that is true enlightenment. And at the time it sounded so profound. <laughs> like now I look at that thought and I'm like, I mean, I understand the, you know, the the idea of what I was thinking. Um, but yeah, now it seems kind of ridiculous, you know. I, <laughs> Ryan gave me edibles once and uh, I, I took too much and forgot how to pee. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I found anything profound there. I just crawled back to bed yeah. from the bathroom. Um, but Sam, you've written about about psychedelics and and waking yeah. up, and uh, you see, there's a place for. It, but I also think there's a problem with. I think we're constantly looking for shortcuts. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Can, yeah. Can you maybe expand on that a bit? Well, so I think psychedelics can be incredibly useful and. Uh, they can serve a few functions. I mean, one is just they can prove to you that it's possible to have a very different experience of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so if, in, until you've taken 
something like LSD or psilocybin or MDMA. Uh, you could be someone uh, like I once was who uh, could read books, religious books, spiritual books, uh, works of philosophy that touch on on these topics, and think there's just no there there. There's just like the, either these are superstitions or conscious frauds, or we're talking about you know some percentage of people are epileptic or you know otherwise insane, and mm-hmm. they're reporting about a a landscape of of experience that either doesn't exist or or is pathological. It's just synonymous with the erosion of of reason and any kind of sane uh, worldview, and that's just not true. Now, there's there, it's true that there are many strange experiences you can have that are either not worth having or you certainly want to recover from. You know, you don't want to be the guy who who uh, takes acid and uh, uh, thinks pseudo profound thoughts that can't be meaningfully uh, articulated to people, and then that's where you're stuck for the rest of your life, right? right. You know, and this and this feeling of meaningfulness or profundity can become uncoupled from coherent concepts that could impart that profundity to others, mm. right? So, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you, you honestly, I mean, this is one thing you can can discover in meditation or in in you know with psychedelics is that you can you can have the beatific vision on anything. You know, you can it doesn't matter. It can be a beautiful sunset. And then people standing next to uh, next to you will understand at least the, the at least the nominal appropriateness of you know where your gaze is pointed. But if you're staring into the bottom of a cup of tea, mm-hmm. right, and having the the most profound experience of your life, well, then people begin to worry about your sanity, right? right. And um, so I think we do ultimately. I think we want our Claims about profundity to be in register with what can be, you know, rationally uh, discussed. But uh, it is in the nature of consciousness that if you become more and more concentrated on anything, there's some intrinsic uh, rewarding com- components to consciousness. I mean, things like bliss and rapture can appear. And again, it doesn't matter what you're concentrated on. It can be the breath. It can be a mantra. It can be a candle flame. It can be any arbitrary object. Is in the nature of concentration to 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 give you that feeling, and uh, so psychedelics, you know, are a mixed bag because you can have experiences that are really identical to to psychosis. I mean, you can have a very you know harrowing, terrifying experiences of of uh, uh, that are exactly the kind of experiences you don't want, and are you know you, you will will be happy to recover from. Mm-hmm. But then you can have just utterly blissful, um, uh, seemingly enlightened experiences. I mean, ex- you know, experiences where, if they could only be permanent, you would you would be the sort of person who could rightly say, "Well, you know, I'm you know I'm just like Jesus, or I'm just like Buddha." You're like mm. this is like this is, this is my feeling of of uh, uh, just awe at the beauty of everything mm-hmm. and absolute unconditional compassion for everyone just 
is shows no sign of being limited, right? I mean, like that's like the, the, it's possible to touch that. Mm-hmm. It's just it's very haphazard with psychedelics, and yeah. you don't know. It's, it's like a spin of the roulette wheel. You don't know what you're going to get, and you know I've taken the same drug in the same place at the same time with the same people, and had diametric experiences. So it's like you, you, it's, it's the so-called set and setting variables that you can seem to to get in hand are really are are don't give you any guarantee of of what your experience is going to be certainly on a drug like LSD or psilocybin yeah. um, but they can be incredibly useful and they're now and they're now being used in in scientific research after more than a generation of being ignored because they've been they've been made illegal and mm-hmm. um you know, I think that there's a lot of promising work with PTSD and, and you know, end of life care with with psilocybin and MDMA, in particular. So I'm very, you know, you know, ultimately I think we want to do as much research and experimentation uh, as we can with these drugs and new ones because, yeah, I mean, the keys to the mind are on some level a matter of uh, uh, pharmacology, but there's the benefit of meditation is that it is it is a far more systematic way of exploring this landscape where you don't you don't have the the you're not running the risk of of uh, kind of radical departures from from uh, a healthy experience that uh, can really terrify you. Yeah, I think yeah. that, that even the novice meditator can start to find glimpses of the beauty and the profundity and the bliss that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, it's it's not a shortcut, but it's a it's a it's still a, you can find a direct path uh, via mindfulness because yeah. you're 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 finding a way to control those thoughts. Um, well, okay. control is the wrong word, but just to be clear, there's nothing that a drug is doing to your brain that your brain isn't capable of doing anyway. You know, so so the, many of the experiences I've had uh, on psychedelics, I've had through meditation. I mean, they've been you know the, in periods of intensive retreat, and I mean for that reason, I would say that not everyone is suited to do a long silent retreat. I mean, there are people who have who go on you know a three month silent retreat and ha- can have destabilizing experiences. Mm. So if you're that if you're somebody who thinks you're on the edge of any kind of you know, real psychological diagnosis, whether you're manic depressive or, or uh, schizophrenic or, 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 you know, or, or that runs in your family. I mean, I think, that, I think silent retreat is enough of a pressure cooker that, that you know, I, I would approach that with, with uh, caution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you do, just be aware that that's a, a liability there. But, um, yeah, it's uh, having a daily practice can be, yeah, you can absolutely touch more importantly, you 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 can intu- you can touch what is really freeing about these changes in consciousness. It's not it's because it, again the the real freedom is not a matter of the pyrotechnics of an acid trip because again those come and go. I mean mm-hmm. those are, those are not permanent. The real freedom is to discover that the ordinary experience of just seeing your hand, right, is on some level as free and unconstrained by egoity as as the craziest thing anyone's ever had happen to them on ayahuasca or acid mm-hmm. or anything else. I mean, it's, it's like you can, you know, paradoxically, you can be ego-bound in the midst of a, uh, of a, the most kaleidoscopic uh, change in experience based on psychedelics 
and you can be free of self without anything at the level of the contents of consciousness, consciousness changing. So you can be, you can be, you can have a truly ordinary experience that has no center, mm-hmm. right? Mm. And you can have the most extraordinarily blissful and uh, psychedelic experience that is still anchored to the sense of self, right? right. And so that, and that, and so uh, you know, the, the former is what you you want from a you know uh, the the point of view of psychological health ultimately yeah i mean that's that's what i the one thing i do i guess appreciate about psychedelics is that you can get to a point where it does help with perspective yeah but yeah. you know the way i look at psychedelics it's the same way i look as at any other tool that we have in our lives like it is just that it's a tool and if we're using it properly uh and when i say that i mean you know i wouldn't just take ayahuasca and then put on dark side of the moon and just sit there and freak out like i would probably do it with a shaman you know have someone who has experience in a guy you know some type of guided journey and that doesn't necessarily guarantee a great experience but you know going into it with the idea of um not necessarily having an end goal but having a goal of having an altered perception with with the way you approach life you know that can be a useful tool but again, like just to, you know, take some acid and listen to Dark Side of the Moon, it, it is, it's a roulette wheel. Like you might have a good yeah. time, you might have a really bad time. It's <laughs> yeah. a, a good place to end. Sam, I want to thank you for uh, yeah, dude. creating something meaningful for the world. You're this, awesome, man. Th- this app, we've gotten a lot of value from. Folks, want to check it out. It's uh, wakingup.com. Uh, they can check out your podcast. It's called Making Sense, wherever you get podcasts, samharris.org. You can find all your books over there. But thank you for being here today. Oh, yeah, well, thank you, guys. It was really a pleasure. You're yeah. awesome. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Thanks for all the support, y'all. Take care. Don Minimalists. <laughs>